Hello, friends, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. You'll get one chapter every week of my book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Stick around afterwards for a little post-chapter discussion with me and a special guest. This week's guest is Molly McKay. On Defining Marriage, we trace the decades-long evolution of marriage through the personal stories of those who lived through it. Defining Marriage is the story of how people from all walks of life fought to change marriage, and how fighting for marriage, in turn, changed them. Chapter 17. Set Course for the Alpha Quadrant James and I arrived at Atomic Coffee, a cute little coffee shop with vegan snacks and local art on the wall, a little after noon. The cafe sits in a brick row of buildings on a pedestrian-friendly street, dotted with antique and art stores, art galleries, a yarn shop, and row after row of bicycles. If not for the giant Fargo marquee down the street, it could easily have fit in downtown Berkeley or Seattle's Capitol Hill or Harvard Square in Cambridge, rather than Fargo, North Dakota. This is so cute, I said. We could live here. We don't have to decide that right now, said James. We were not quite halfway through a summer road trip that had taken us from L.A. through Arizona to Las Vegas and then to Portland, from there to Seattle and Vancouver, then east through Montana. Chicago still awaited us, and Columbus, D.C., New York, and Bangor, Maine. Then after a few days with family in New England, we'd be heading back west through Pennsylvania to Kansas and to Denver and Utah, and finally L.A. once again. We'd seen a few of our friends on the trip, scattered across the country, and I'd interviewed some folks for this book. Meeting Dan Savage in Seattle was a highlight, and I was nervously looking forward to contacting Catherine Lehman when we neared Washington, and Andrew Sullivan in Provincetown. We'd detoured into Fargo so I could meet with Josh Bechet, the state's first openly gay state legislator and one of the masterminds behind a lawsuit against North Dakota's marriage ban. But we were also scouting for a new home. With the Prop 8 lawsuit done, my work in L.A. was complete, and it was time for us to find a city we could love. Thanks to a billionaire tech boom, San Francisco was no longer accepting new residents, so we decided to spend a month on a coast-to-coast apartment hunt. Our criteria? A cold climate, copious nerds, and more people on two wheels than on four. So far, we'd found a few places that were even less suitable than L.A. Temperatures were well into the hundreds as we passed through Phoenix, and the streets were roughly as difficult to cross as the Grand Canyon. Initially, I'd found the trip to be stressful. I depended on routine, and it was alarming to land in a new city each night, tapping away at travel websites around 8 p.m. to find the cheapest last-minute hotel an hour down the road. By the time we ruled out Los Angeles, Phoenix, and Las Vegas, I was so agitated about our new nomadic lifestyle that I couldn't eat and had developed stress-related hives. Oddly enough, it was while we stood in line at Voodoo Donuts in Portland, where you can buy a dozen pastries embedded with giant nuggets of cereal, that my stomach's churning started to lessen. This was the first stop on our national tour where I could actually see us living. There was wet, gloomy weather to satisfy James, bike lanes for me, and bookstores for both of us. We skirted around the edge of a pride parade, which just happened to coincide with our June journey, and at a barcade down the street from our hotel, he tried to teach me how to play pinball. How did I get so lucky, I thought, watching him sink quarter after quarter into his Star Trek-themed game. Set course for the Alpha Quadrant, Jonathan Frakes' voice floated out of the machine. And that's how a pinball machine cured my anxiety rash. The first few days of the trip had felt random and depressing. There were insufficient beards and bikes for us in Arizona, and we barely survived the wilting heat of Nevada. But as we headed into cooler, hipsterier climates, I could see a life together materializing amongst the pine trees and pride parades. By the time we reached the Pacific Northwest, I had never been happier. Every new city was a little window into a potential new life that we could build, the two of us, together. I could see us pinballing in Portland well into our old age, or boiling water for tea as it drizzled outside in Seattle, or settling into the solitude of a cabin in Montana. 
James was strolling Fargo's Broadway corridor, peeking into storefronts, when Josh Bechet arrived at Atomic for our interview. I knew of him through marriage equality circles, since he'd been instrumental in arranging a challenge to North Dakota's marriage ban a few months prior. The state was the last one in the country with an unchallenged ban, in part because it seemed like a lost cause. A 2012 study pegged public support for marriage equality at 40 percent, and even though a lawsuit wouldn't be subject to a vote, judges tend to avoid getting too far out ahead of public opinion. Meanwhile, lawsuits in a dozen other states were already close to the U.S. Supreme Court and would likely get a ruling within a year. So why even bother filing a lawsuit when every strategic consideration—timing, public opinion, fundraising—seems to indicate that it was a waste of time? As we chatted, I started to see how Josh's background primed him for this underdog cause. He grew up in Little Minot, North Dakota, population 35,000-ish, and worked as an organizer with the North Dakota Student Association, coordinating Greek life and developing safe zone training programs. For a long time, he clung to the closet, even as students close to his own age were coming out to him. North Dakota was not an easy place to be openly gay. We're Scandinavian and German, so we don't talk about controversy. He said, "We talk about the weather a lot." I think it's hard for some families to be able to acknowledge to their neighbors that I have a gay son, and that's why you never see him because he doesn't want to come home to Higby. Then, in 2008, he read Barack Obama's book, *The Audacity of Hope*. There's more I can be doing with my life, he thought, and quit his job to work for the Obama campaign. From that point on, he split his time between leadership training at North Dakota State University, the Fargo Human Relations Commission, and the board of directors for Fargo Morehead Pride. The idea of a constitutional lawsuit would float up every now and then. We're in the Eighth Circuit, he'd counter, meaning that their federal judges were all pretty conservative. It's not where the battlefield is. We're just going to hope and pray that the other states take care of it for us. This was more or less a parroting of what the national groups were telling him at the time. He sighed as he recalled how he used to dismiss the idea of North Dakota playing a role in the marriage fight. Organizations like the Human Rights Campaign have no problem calling and asking for membership dollars, he said. But when it comes to things that we're working on and we're calling for help, it just hasn't been delivered. A few years ago, HRC sent a staffer to lobby state lawmakers on the repeal of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." That was refreshing, he said, since it showed people that the state could play a role in the national conversation. But once that work was done, that was it. HRC and its resources were recalled back to Washington, D.C. Josh knew that the chances of a North Dakota lawsuit actually happening would be slim to none, and without any support from outside the state, victory was virtually unthinkable. So why bother? Josh's resistance to a lawsuit was worn down in part by Fargo's gee whiz small town charm. The plaintiffs in the case that eventually materialized weren't photogenic power couples vetted to within an inch of their lives by PR experts. Instead, they were his neighbors, Celeste and Amber, who he knew were expecting a third child in a few weeks. Celeste, a social worker for the Veterans Administration, and Amber, a home daycare provider, were barred from both appearing on their own kids' birth certificates in North Dakota, so they had to traverse a labyrinth of adoption paperwork for their own children. But if they had left the hospital, crossed the street, and gave birth on a sidewalk in Morehead, Minnesota, they would automatically have both been recognized as the mothers, thanks to Richard Kaldbaum's winning marriage campaign two years earlier. Josh knew other plaintiffs too, longtime neighbors like Bernie, general director of the Fargo Morehead Opera Company, and David. A local realtor, and he met Matthew and Bo, a military couple starting a life together in Josh's little hometown of Minot. These folks weren't abstract strategies, political calculations, or PR stunts. They were members of his community who needed to protect their kids, or buy a house, or retire. They wanted to live their lives as quietly and comfortably as anyone else. And Josh, who like them was in a relationship with the man he loved, was starting to feel ready for a marriage of his own. But when a pair of attorneys in Minneapolis called Josh out of the blue to ask if they might launch a lawsuit together, 
Josh was still reluctant. Everyone's told us no, he told them. But after he hung up, he couldn't stop thinking about the offer and his neighbors and the audacity of hope. Wait a minute, he thought. We have someone who said, we will, and there are people who said, we want to. Furthermore, several other unlikely states had just won major court victories, and couples were suddenly getting married in Utah and Kentucky. Sure, the national groups had said to wait, but the more he thought about it, the more he realized, you know what, we don't need the national groups. We'll just do it on our own. Of course, everyone knew the North Dakota case probably wouldn't be the one that decided, well, much of anything. But that wasn't the point. Our initial intention was to give these families a voice to tell their story, he said. The lawsuit was really the narrative of their life. The language of the lawsuit was all about adoption and retirement and rights and obligations, because that's what lawsuits have to be. But its legal prospects aren't what lent the North Dakota case its importance. Instead, it was the acknowledgement that the couples existed, and that they had value, and that they were as much a part of the human institution of marriage as anyone else, whether they won their suit or not. Their whole lives, queer North Dakotans had been told to keep quiet, that they were inferior, and that they couldn't possibly meet the definition of marriage. At times, they were told this by their own community. But we'd reached a turning point in America, the culmination of Cleela Rorix's improbable civil disobedience in the 1970s, the acrimony Andrew Sullivan weathered in the 1980s, Nania and Janora's long-shot lawsuit of the 1990s, Mike Marshall's determination and Jenny Canalos's optimism of the 2000s, and the love and commitment of millions upon millions of couples, from the men and women whose invitations I'd found in the Library of Congress, to the unnameable love and commitment that James and I felt for each other. The definition of marriage, it turns out, isn't what everyone once assumed. Rather than an exclusive club tied to gender and genitals, it's an institution that thrives when it's open to all. Until America had national equality, the only place that some queer couples' voices could be heard is in a lawsuit. But soon enough, one way or another, they'd be heard where they belong. Everywhere, out in the open, in as much or as little of a marriage as those couples chose. There's a lot of people who don't have a voice, Josh said. As the state's only openly gay legislator, he heard from them all the time, even more so now that the lawsuit had been filed. And after years of stifling his own, he was determined to make those voices heard, no matter whether they were strategically convenient. It's humbling, he said. It's hard. But I realize it's important. As someone who doesn't know if he believes in God or whatnot, I'm here for a purpose, and this might be it. I recognized those words. It's what I felt when I dove into the marriage fight myself, years earlier. Fighting for marriage gave me a purpose and made my strange relationship make sense. I was the marriage guy, fighting for equality, because that was the only way I could think of to keep my relationship strong. But it was through that work that I discovered what made my relationship strong without the benefit of marriage. My feelings for James and his feelings for me, and the place that those feelings overlap and match, like two hands forming a shadow puppet of a gangly, happy giraffe. James met me outside the coffee shop after I was done talking to Josh. We'd both bought tall smoothies to share with each other, and now found ourselves holding too many sweating cups in the hot summer sun. We headed back to the car and cranked on the air conditioning, heading east over a thin bridge that spanned the Red River with tall green elms shading us as we drove. I told him about how Josh questioned his faith, but that he'd found that giving voice to the voiceless nourished his spirit. It reminded me of that sign that I'd spotted way back in front of the Supreme Court. Who was imperfect man to change God-perfect plan? Ha! The question makes no sense, of course. When it comes to marriage, there is no perfect plan, just an unpredictable road trip with a map that shifts at every landmark you encounter. But I knew exactly who imperfect man is. In fact, I knew two imperfect men, doing their level best to make sense of each other as they headed down a green winding road, side by side, on a journey to the place where they could settle down and build a home together. 
while Imperfect Man has struck again. Yes, at last, the answer to your question from the beginning. It's true, it's, uh, it's a lot like Lost, I'm not totally satisfied. Oh, well, uh, don't leave that in your Amazon review. <laughs> My Amazon review never appeared, so I don't really? know if it was rejected, or just the internet ate it, or if someone saw it and didn't like it. Oh, how strange. I did reference the episode where Pee Wee Herman marries a fruit salad, so maybe someone thought I was making fun of the book. That is fairly consistent with what conversations with you are like. Uh, so, uh, we won marriage. How about that? That's... Did we? I thought this chapter ended with it looming. Well, yes, marriage looms, but, uh, it's, it's available. We, we, the fight is over for, for legalized marriage, not between you and I. The fight between you and I continues, uh, just indefinitely. Begun. Yes, I know. We're locked in eternal struggle. We're like two sheep with horns. So one of the one of the big questions that people were asking, not just me, but everyone, after uh, after we got married from the Supreme Court, uh, was, now what? Uh, what do you do when you just wake up one day and you find what, for many people, was their life's work complete? Uh, to answer that, uh, let's talk about Molly McKay. So Molly was the one who used to show up to things in a wedding dress, right? Yes, that's right. I don't think you ever were present for any of her rallies. Uh, but she would she would arrive wearing a wedding dress and she had a loudspeaker and march through the streets leading the procession with uh, a loudspeaker. Sometimes there'd be a guy with a guitar by her side and they'd be leading chants and everything. Uh, she was like the face of the rallies. Um, and then after Prop 8 passed, uh, she and Davina, uh, her wife, broke up. And that breakup really left her devastated. Crying my eyes out every day on the ferry from Oakland to San Francisco, I felt like not only was I losing the love of my life, but I was losing my the love my life's work. Because of course, you know, you don't have you can't speak as a happy married couple if you if your wife is telling you she's divorcing you. So just like that, her life's work, her marriage, and her quest to bring marriage to everyone. All gone. Uh, without the relationship, she just didn't know what she was fighting for anymore. Um, but then something unexpected happened. Or someone unexpected. Someone she met on that daily ferry ride to work where she was crying. Here's this quiet, young guy that's serving me coffee every day, um, who's listening, who's supportive, who's non-judgmental, who doesn't know me from any other place. And, you know, and then he shares, well, you know, when my dad transitioned to a woman when I was a teenager after um, she was a huge criminal defense attorney in Sacramento, you know, that was a really hard um, transition for her to make because, you know, people saw her as this like cowboy dude, you know, super strong, lost a lot of clients, lost a law partner. But, you know, at the end of the day, she's just, she's so happy to be who she is and to live her life. And those who loved her stood by her like me and my mom. And, you know, now she's living totally self-expressed. And so, you know, that's what's going to happen to you. And then I kept saying, you know, I can't start my life over. I'm 40. I'm old. And he's like, you know, you're still kind of hot. And if, if you ever want to just hang out, <laughs> go have a beer, nothing, you know, no, no worries. And the next thing you know, I'm married and we, we've, we've uh, fallen in love. I meet and am, you know, soulmates now with his extended family and we have a beautiful daughter. So you just never know. So nobody was more surprised by this than Molly herself. Uh, not only because she, after all this time she wound up marrying a man and having a baby, but because suddenly her life's work wasn't a cause. It was a person, her daughter. And it turns out you don't just get one shot at having a life's work. That work has a way of calling to you, even when you don't expect it. Does Molly still do any activism? Oh, there's always a gnawing sense of not doing enough. And I know I have more in me to give. 
Um, but at the same time, I know right now that like my daughter needs my full bandwidth and then my family needs me to work full time and I'm the, you know, sole breadwinner. Well, maybe, you know, I can help Mackenzie in this next generation. That's what gets to be my contribution is help to shape a person who is resilient and is open and is loving and is kind to the next generation. That's the contribution I can give, but it's very difficult not to want to, when you turn on the news and you see Greenpeace, to not want to just go grab your belay and like get out there. <laughs> Take your kids, strap her on the back with the eco baby carrier and hang with them. And all these exciting things continue to happen. There's still so much work to be done. But I just have to say to myself, but what is what what is what I have to do today? So sometimes it's just being a good mom. And so even though my marriage ended, which was very heartbreaking, just getting to participate in that uh, moment and then to have that loving relationship for 15 years and just really just being grateful for every day that that happened and then being grateful for the next chapter that opened up. It's all been one wild ride and it's been pretty sweet. You went on a wild ride this weekend. I did. I did. I was delirious by the end of it. Uh, I did a big fundraiser for Extra Life, uh, the charity that benefits children's hospitals, and raised uh, a little over 400 for Seattle Children's Hospital by playing video games for 24 hours straight and live streaming them on YouTube. Um, so that left my brain a little addled, but it was, it was fun and rewarding to do, do it for the kids. You had your first taste of Mountain Dew? I did! My first ever Mountain Dew and my first ever Hot Pocket. Sounds like a euphemism, but it's not. No, I just had a, I had a Hot Pocket. Did uh, it agree with you? Uh, no, we, uh, we were also locked in conflict, the Hot Pocket and I. It sounded, uh, within an hour, my body sounded like an avalanche. Your body is a wonderland. It is. It is. It's more like a fun, fun fair. Do, 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 do. There was that guy on YouTube who said that you had the Coney Island head haircut. Oh, uh, yes. He, he referred to my Coney Island comb over. I'm still not entirely sure what that is, but you went on quite a search and found a lot of bad Coney Island hair for me to, uh, to accuse me of having. Enough of this Coney baloney. It is time for questions. All right. What is the Alpha Quadrant? What is the Alpha Quadrant? I can't believe you've asked that. That's where we live. It's where we eventually made our home. It's in Seattle? Uh, no, the Alpha Quadrant is uh, this sector of the galaxy. It's where uh, Starfleet is based, and it's where Voyager was trying to get back to. It's where the wormhole let out around DS9. Anyway, the Alpha Quadrant is not just a Star Trek reference. It's an astronomical reference to this part of the galaxy. That seems awfully presumptuous of us. Also known as Sector ZZ9, plural Z Alpha. You claim that watching me do poorly at a Star Trek-themed pinball machine made you realize you were lucky. Yes. This seems pathetic. Explain yourself. What? It wasn't, it wasn't like we went on a date and I was like, man, he's real lousy at pinball. This <laughs> one's a catch. No, instead... It, 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 justify your feelings. Justify your love. I don't have to justify myself to you. No, I, and, but I will. Uh, you make me happy is what it comes down to, to, to quote the Muppets. Uh, you uh, took me out to a, to a barcade and showed me something fun that I had never done before. And there's sort of an ineffable quality to what makes a good date, I think, uh, that you lose yourself in it and suddenly find yourself wishing that it could just go on forever. That's how I felt standing there in the barcade playing pinball with you as you guided me through this. Um, you, you know these devices much better than I do. So you were able to recommend them to me and give me advice and teach me something new. And it took me back to early in our relationship when you did the same thing with Dragon Ball Z. Again, sounds pathetic. However, I contend that a good date should have an effable quality. <laughs> Describe your feelings about the town of Fargo. 
what a cute little place uh, in segments. There was that nice little Broadway Main Street kind of area with bikes, and you could walk around, and there was a train. Just as we were uh, like walking into town uh, or walking up the street, there was this train chugging by, making like a toot-toot noise by a bike shop. And I was like, if I was to design a getaway for myself, a place to get away from all the hustle and bustle of the city, the hubbub, uh, Fargo's pretty close to it. Um, you know, or at least that one street of it, because as soon as you get out of that main street, uh, it's all strip malls and uh, 30, 30 minute drives just to get to the grocery store. Did you like it? You, you went on a walk for a long time while I was talking to him. I discovered a restaurant that had burritos. One of the burritos was called the White Chick and the other was called the All-American uh, and it included hamburger and cheese. Oh, my stars. There was also a drugstore that looked like something out of the video game Fallout. It was a drugstore from the 50s that had not been updated, but also didn't seem like it did a ton of business. So it was, it had the soda fountain with ice cream in the front, and then a few rows of shelves, and then was just kind of empty and unlit. So it, it seemed like a great place to shoot a zombie apocalypse. It sounds like you just wandered into a little twilight zone. Were there ghouls? There was ghoulishness. There were ghoulish people. Did you did you find, like, this was an environment where you were suddenly at home? In the same way that I was around the toot-toot train in the bike shop? I could see myself becoming a ghoul there, but uh, I also would not want to have to drive places. So I would be a housebound ghoul. That is why we took a pass on Fargo. Places like North Dakota that have historically been hostile to LGBT people. Why... Don't the LGBTs leave? Many do. Others uh, have to engage in a calculation of, uh, well, this is my home and there are a lot of things I like about it and a lot of things I don't like and a lot of things about me that it doesn't like. And so you do kind of a balancing act there. I ask you this. How have things changed in places like North Dakota since, say, 2008? Oh, significantly. Um you know, all over the country, we see an increase in public support for LGBTs, not just for marriage, but for, you know, among people who say that it's an, an alternative lifestyle or um, it's morally wrong. You know, the growing, growing, growing support for, for the LGBTs. At the conclusion of the chapter, you reference two imperfect men. Yes. Are these my two dads? Is that your way of telling me that you're pregnant? Yes, but I will not disclose with what. <laughs> pauses. You're pregnant with pauses. Or just pause. Rough, rough. We're both pregnant with pause? I don't know what that would mean. Other than that, um, we, can't, uh, we can't operate cutlery. Now, you have spun a Twilight Zone scenario. <laughs> yes. What, what crazy world are we living in? We're surrounded by delicious filet mignon, but we cannot <laughs> use cutlery. Meanwhile, the dog has fully developed human hands. And is playing the piano. <laughs> This is uh, quite a nightmare, and yet also strangely enticing. And it howls Sinatra songs. <laughs> what was it you were saying last night about dogs and religion? Oh, for heaven's sake, are you going to hold that against me? As I was falling off to sleep, after being up for 24 hours, I think my last words were, uh, my final words, I'd be willing to give religion a second chance if there was a church that baptized dogs. Those will be your final words for question time. Oh, good. Well, I've answered quite a few questions and created many, many more. Now, that is the last official chapter of the book, is it not? Well, there's an afterword, and uh, there'll be some more episodes after that, but we'll get to that next week. And if people have questions for you next week, how do they supply their questions to you? Listeners, please do get in touch. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. You can reach me at facebook.com slash mattbaum or twitter.com slash mattbaum. You can also leave a review on iTunes. Which is very helpful. Here is one from Bobby B. Weeho. 
Part history book, part love letter. Hearing Matt read from his book about the history and various background stories is my tingly feeling I look forward to every week. Yay, thank you very much, Bobby. I'm happy to provide you with tingly feelings. So what is it to become of this podcast? Is there going to be an episode next week? There certainly is. We've got an afterwards and uh, quite a few more things to talk about, you and I, uh, and also just in general about uh, marriage stuff. Uh, so uh, we're far, far, far from the end. Next week, uh, we're going to get to the afterward of the book, um, where I talk about the Supreme Court decision that happened earlier this year. And we'll also cover some of the things that have happened in the year since this chapter, uh, since this book ended. Magnificent. But if you, listener, cannot control yourself and you must know immediately... What is in the afterword? Uh, how, how can the listener do that, huh? Well, you can get the book on Amazon. And uh, if you do do that, uh, please do leave some feedback. Ooh, here's a review from Mac Garland. Amazing read. The book is fresh, emotional, and a nice overview of the marriage equality process going back to the dark ages of the 1970s and before. Thank you very much, Mac. Mac joined me for the uh, live stream this weekend uh, when I was doing uh, the video games for 24 hours. Uh, so I'm delighted that he, uh, he was able to get the book and also uh, leave a comment there. Uh, and I wouldn't call the 70s dark ages. They were they're maybe beige ages. They're macrame ages. Going back to the macrame age. Yes, this geological epoch of the macrame age. Uh, meanwhile, uh, speaking of macrame, uh, no, uh, check out my other uh, projects. I've got The Sewers of Paris. Uh, that's my other podcast featuring revealing intimate stories of the entertainment that changed the lives of gay men. Uh, and I'm up on the YouTubes, not just live streaming video games, but also making uh, other videos on topics related to LGBTs and entertainment. Uh, and uh, big thanks to my guests this week, Molly McKay, for chatting with me. And until next time, friends, by the power vested in me by the internet, I now pronounce this podcast over. <laughs>